welcome to episode 64 of Goodwill Hunters and our third Impact Investment Masterclass with Rosemary Addis. And this is the fourth time that we've had Rosemary on the show. Rosemary is one of the world's preeminent impact pioneers. She has helped to shape the system to deliver innovation and investment that benefits people and the planet. Her global portfolio includes trustee of the Global Steering Group for Impact Investment, senior advisor to the United Nations Development Program's SDG Impact, and she's also been an expert reviewer for impact initiatives of the OECD and the World Economic Forum. Rosemary's 30 plus years of experience spans sectors, disciplines and geographies from a global legal career with Allens, Linkletters and Kirkland and Ellis, New York, where she ranked among the world's leading lawyers, to the first social innovation strategist for the Australian Government and member of the Social Impact Investment Task Force established under the UK presidency of the G8, where she was invited to represent Australia as the only participating country from outside the G7 and EU. Rosemary was also the founding chair of the Australian Advisory Board on Impact Investing, for which she remains an ambassador, and she's founding chair of Impact Capital Australia and Impact Investing Australia. We cover a lot of ground in this episode. We start with the state of the nation here in Australia, in particular the bushfire crisis that has faced our country this summer. We also talk about what the crisis means for leadership and for investment and the way we think about funding social change. We discuss the Social Impact Investing Task Force and the opportunity we have to shape a better enabling environment for impact investment. We then discuss the review of our aid policy that is underway, including innovative financing opportunities and measuring progress against the Sustainable Development Goals. This includes discussion of the Pacific Infrastructure Financing Facility and one of my favourite programs, Investing in Women. Lastly, we discuss what's happening globally, including the launch of the Impact Investment Institute in the UK and the Davos Manifesto 2020. Rosemary and I chat regularly, both in these episodes and outside of them, about why impact investment is so important for our aid sector. As Rosemary and I acknowledge in this episode, we're in an environment in Australia where our government-funded development spending is very unlikely to increase in the short term. However, we are having a refresh of our aid policy where we can all contribute to the discussion on what a great aid program looks like. Impact investment presents an opportunity to sustainably fund the sector for greater impact. All organisations that I chat to are actively considering impact investment, so I hope these episodes are and continue to be an opportunity to learn more about impact investment and how it relates to our aid sector. Now, before we hit play on this episode, I want to remind you that tickets are now on sale for the Australasian Aid Conference from the 17th to the 19th of February at ANU in Canberra. The conference is run by the brilliant Development Policy Centre, which you heard about a few weeks back when I had Stephen Howes on the show. I'll be at the conference, I'll be interviewing a lot of the keynote speakers, and I'll be hosting the conference dinner. I would love to see lots of you there, so if you haven't bought your ticket already, get onto it. There's a link in the show notes for this episode. Okay, lastly, I had a terrible head cold when I recorded this episode and you might pick it up in my voice. I think everyone I know got sick over the festive season. I'm well again now and able to speak clearly again, so that's a win. All right, over to Rosemary. All right, Rosemary, thank you for chatting to me for our third Impact Investing Masterclass episode. It's a pleasure to be with you again, Rachel. Now, it would be remiss of us not to start this episode by acknowledging the extraordinary uh, environmental crisis that we have in Australia at the moment. Um, Anyone in Australia and probably internationally would know that these bushfires that we're experiencing have have been on the news every night for 
what feels like months now. So it's a really interesting time in terms of the role of government, the role of others and the notion of leadership. Um, so I think if we could start just with some opening comments from you on, on what this, this point in time means for Australia. It's obviously a really profound uh, moment and, and one where we have deep empathy for all of the people who uh, have been affected directly and, and indirectly. Uh, it's hard to get much more stark examples of the impacts for people and for the planet, you know, writ large in the in the environment, in, in the experience of people. Um, this is obviously one example. There are others around the world where we see the effects of climate and uh, of the decisions that are being taken or not being taken by uh, by leaders and the cumulative effect of, of things over time uh, around the world. It's also an occasion where we see the best of people as well and the very human face of of what in these discussions often get rolled up as 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 stakeholders or um, or communities, and we see that in the courage of people on the front lines. We see it in the responsiveness of of strangers to one another. We see it in uh, the corporates spurred to to action and looking at the ways that they can use their skills and supply chains to to engage. And so I think the reflection. Um, is one that has two dimensions to it. One is that hopefully the positive we can take out of these events is that the opportunities to be proactive and to move beyond kind of incrementalism to really change the pace with which we look at how we can create a more positive future and step into the challenges of, of transformation in ways that can build resources for communities and, and transition people to, to the jobs for an economy that works for people and the planet into the future, that it's a profound time to, to look at what we can do that's positive and the need to step in and make sure that happens because the costs of inaction and the missed opportunities is too great for us to continue to, to bear. Secondly, that, that we see that there is so much in leadership from all levels of community that we can tap into and that in a crisis people are really generous and can find ways in, in their businesses and in their everyday lives to be engaging in a more productive and, and proactive way. And I think we've seen announcements from a range of businesses, from professional service firms to banks in the last couple of, of days where they have looked right across their businesses at how they can respond, not only in philanthropy and donations, but in ways integral to their business, restructuring of, of loans in ways that are responsive to the current needs of their uh, of their consumers, helping to look to where communities can build for the future, providing advice on, on what that's going to take. These are all great examples of what we could build on uh, to take a longer-term view as well beyond the immediate crisis to to be building that transformation that's needed into the way we work. I think the pace of change is a, is a really important point there. Um, I wonder if we know how much the total donations from the general public has, has reached yet. Like I imagine it would be in excess of a billion dollars. 
um, when you combine all of the donations from the general public as well as from corporate Australia. And what it demonstrates is that society at large can move an enormous amount of money in a very short span of time when they're galvanised to do so. Um, and I think I think that presents a really interesting example for us. I think Paul Gilding wrote a, a book a few years ago reflecting on his time as, uh, as an environmental activist and in trying to mobilise corporates to see the, the business value in engaging with climate change and environmental sustainability. And, and his thesis is we're good with our backs to the wall and I think Australians are particularly uh, a particularly profound example of that, um, and we can move quickly when we when we need to. There is obviously in the current circumstances a, a need for immediate relief, and that will go on for some time. People need food and shelter and clothes, and uh, and the um, effort in in combating the fires and and dealing with the fallout in communities needs to be funded. Uh, longer term, though, I think we can uh, look at how we can mobilise capital, the efforts of governments, the generosity of the of communities into building uh, future in some of these communities, not only looking at the environmental sustainability, looking at how we uh, rebuild and the design opportunities there, looking at how we invest in, in innovation and in technologies that will help to uh, create jobs and transition us much faster towards um, a sustainable future. And as you say, the kind of money that's raised in the crisis is just an example that there is money out there once we decide it's a priority and it shouldn't take crisis for us to decide that it is a priority. And an interesting phrase that's been used by Prime Minister Scott Morrison a lot in recent days has been whatever it costs, um, which which I guess is a reference to the cost of the recovery effort. However, it's not so much uh, a reference to the cost of the wide scale transformation that's required in the way that we manage our environment and our economy that we're talking about. And I think that's where impact investment is um, is particularly relevant. So the social impact investing task force um, could play um, an important role in, in taking positive steps um, in creating that transformation. Um, what do you see as their possible role? Yeah, so we've got this confluence of, of circumstances where we've got a crisis that's really shining a, a light on the need to be able to, to mobilise for uh, rebuilding of communities and to be driving industries that will serve us well in in the future in ways that uh, in ways that meet people's needs and meet the environment's needs. And at the same time, we've got the social impact investment task force that was established in last year's budget and um, and that has embarked on its work since the since the election. And so we've actually got a group with the expert group chaired by Michael Trail that has a mandate with a very strong link directly into the Prime Minister's department uh, to be looking at um, at what we can do to be driving more investment towards things that have a positive impact. So I think there's an opportunity to um, maintain and, and develop this focus in government where previously it's kind of been a, an area of interest for many areas of government, but it's not been clearly anyone's job. Now it is with that uh, task force in in PMNC. Uh, so for us to maintain that and for the government to be linking the focus on on impact and impact investing 
into actions that can both catalyse new industries, that can um, that can demonstrate innovative models, that can um, also invest in in place, and and these are all things that um, we've already done some work in Australia for how those things could be could be taken forward. With you know, there's real potential in my view that place-based investing that incentivises investment into communities to create jobs, to create economic dynamism in the current environment, to be creating new industries is absolutely something that we can uh, do and draw on experience internationally. We can be uh, building on the mandate of organisations like the Clean Energy Finance Corporation to also drive investment into reskilling and um, and industries and connect that with communities where there's a need for rebuilding business and and industries. Um, and of course, we've been calling on the government uh, for some time through the Australian Advisory Board on Impact Investing for setting up a public good institution um, in collaboration with the private sector that can really demonstrate new models that can deliver on, on key social issues. What impact investing can do is not so much um, stop you know, stop future bushfires. Um, it's 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 not quite like that. I'm I'm trying to imagine this through the lens of someone who's not super familiar with impact investment and wants to understand how it applies to a bushfire crisis. What it is actually about is the way that we transition our economy um, to being a more um, environmentally um, friendly economy to whether it's carbon neutrality or renewable energy, etc. Impact investment can be the engine that allows us to make that economic shift so absolutely impact investing can can um, be driving more capital either into areas that are a geographic priority because it's where we need jobs um, and transformation for communities impact investing can be um, incentivizing or directing investment into new industries for example that may be um, more sustainable building materials or design that's going to be needed to rebuild these communities. It might be transitioning our uh, economies more quickly to renewables and, and helping people obtain the skills that they need to be uh, participating in those industries so that we can actually map out a path towards transition from the people currently employed in more or more coal and fossil fuel intensive industries. It, um, it might be looking at... Um, ways that we can employ the great R&D in Australia into um, packaging solutions that use less uh, less plastic and things that are that take less of a toll on the uh, on the environment it might even be investing into aspirational businesses in some of these communities that can help provide the the jobs in the in the medium and longer term um, we can also expect that uh, impact investing can help prove up models that uh, might um, work in terms of housing needs that are flexible for people, that it can drive investment into things like um, food and, um, and supply chains as well. So I think there's a range of ways, some of them that deal with the social needs of people, some of them that deal with the uh, ways in which we can build and provide services and goods for people's needs that are more um, that are more sustainable um, it's not a replacement for the the immediate relief people need in funding but it is a way of directing more finance to things that will help us build more sustainably for the future 
I think the next 12 months will certainly be really interesting to see how corporate Australia and how investors respond to this and also, as you said, whether this is the push that the government needs to set up um, that social good body or something of the like to, to help invest in these innovative responses. Responses, And I think we've already seen some initiatives through groups like the Nature Conservancy working with um, with finance professionals to set up funds that help us manage water resources more sustainably or to um, to invest in areas where we're looking at, at different ways of managing the natural resource of, of tracts of land. And so I think we'll also see um, the opportunity for some of those types of, of investments to be enhanced. So uh, as I said, it's, it's not a replacement for the crisis relief that people need, but it is a way of thinking about how do we invest and direct capital towards rebuilding. Now, that's the state of the nation at the moment. And as we said, um, so much of the media and the discussion in this country in recent months has been focused on the bushfire crisis, and rightly so. Um, But in the midst of all that, we also have a review underway of our aid policy, which was formally announced um, last December. And submissions are currently open from the sector um, to have some input into what that new aid policy looks like. And so I'm really eager to chat to you about the the role of impact investment in the future of our aid programs. So to kind of put it at a, at a big picture level to begin with, um, Minister Alex Hawke and, and, and the government often talks about the aid budget in the context of our national priorities. Um, so that national security narrative is quite strong in the way that we talk about aid. Um, what does that say for uh, our domestic priorities and also Australia's role in the region and in the world? I think when you spoke with Alex on this podcast, uh, the minister um, reflected on the fact that that while there's a, a lot of things we need to be investing in here in Australia, we have a really important role, both because Australians um care about the circumstances of the people who live in the countries around us and because we are an important player in in the region and, and want to be contributing globally. I think as we reflect in, in the current context as well, there may be some Australians who say, well, why would we be continuing to, to do that when there's so much need at home? And indeed, there's a lot of need here. We can also be empathetic through the lens of, of climate at um, what that means for our Pacific neighbours and also that the compounding effect of the challenges that we face in environment and in uh, building economies that work for, for people and the planet um, is a pressing issue in the in the region and that has implications for Australia if we don't continue to, to do that. Uh, so the reality that was also put forward by the Minister when he was on the podcast was that it's unlikely the aid budget is going to increase significantly. So how do we utilise that in order to uh, to leverage other resources um, and make sure that we get uh, real impact with the aid that can go forward? And I think there's an opportunity now to utilise the, the aid review to have a conversation about that. Um, first of all, I think the... Um, the countries around us are a terrific example of what we've seen more globally, that there's been progress in 
things like reducing poverty and increasing access to to education for for people in the last couple of decades. Um, But as Richard Curtis, who brought us four weddings and a funeral, has shown in his uh, terrific video, which I'll give you the link for for your listeners, uh, that says there's no point going halfway, um, we're not there yet in terms of meeting the sustainable development goals. So um, that's an area where Australia has a lot to offer to the um, to the region. Um, and with the challenges of climate change, we also risk undoing some of the uh, some of the progress that's been made. The discussion around development investment uh, is one that has global currency at the moment. And if we are focusing on how Australia can really make sure its aid has an impact, there's an opportunity for us to say, well, how can we use uh, our aid to um, be a good neighbour in the region and also to attract more resources and activity into the region. Um, And two of the key ways we think that that can be done are by focusing on uh, encouraging investment and building capacity for enterprise locally in the region and also um, looking at the infrastructure development that's already in focus with things like the infrastructure financing facility to put impact on the agenda and to uh, be building the local amenity in the countries around us. Yeah, and investing in women and Pacific Rise, um, among others, are both brilliant examples of doing that and we can get into it. But before we do, I just want to pick up on an earlier point you made there that it seems like at the moment there is some unfortunate discussion around whether in the midst of a national emergency like a bushfire crisis we shouldn't be um, providing any foreign aid it's almost like an either or and we come back to this age-old argument that foreign aid is somehow an additional luxury that we can afford when things are okay at home and I would say that most of us in this sector I would say that all of our listeners understand the flawed nature of that argument and why it just simply doesn't apply. And, and there's been some great responses to that sentiment um, in the media in the last week. But how do you how do you respond to comments like that when we're sort of, uh, it's quite a scarce approach to what we can and can't fund? Well, I think that hits the nail on the head, Rachel, because it is driven from a scarcity mentality. And there's a lot of aspects around what people are experiencing in communities at the moment that um, is a reflection of, of that. A lot of the things we've seen in uh, the way that people are, are voting and making choices reflects that there's this fearfulness about the future that comes from thinking maybe there won't be enough, enough for me, enough for my family. And um, and we can understand that. It's also um, a frame of, of mind and decision-making that limits our opportunities. And what we're seeing in the positives from the current crisis is the generosity to our neighbours actually pays dividends in a whole range of ways, and we need to think about that at a national level as well as um, in terms of the of the communities. Um, yes, there's a lot of need at home, but we need to think about this as more than a zero-sum game. It won't be good for Australia if the climate emergency extends into the into the Pacific that will have a whole lot of other ramifications. We can see what's happening in Indonesia at the moment, um, ironically enough, with, with floods. Um, if people in the Pacific uh, can't take efforts in terms of, of climate and uh, 
prepare their countries and we'll have a whole lot of other issues in terms of, um, you know, disease and displacement in, in the region. So uh, changing from that scarcity mindset to one that says we can create more opportunity for everybody if we take a more positive and proactive uh, approach to the future is where we need to keep our focus. Yeah, that's really well said. And I think as we go into this aid review, uh, as you said, the likelihood of increasing the aid budget uh, is very slim. If you know, I would go so far as to say it's not happening. I think we understand that under under the existing government, um, if we do continue with business as usual, there will not be an increase to our aid budget. However, there is a change to our aid policy on the horizon, which really begs the question: How do you make aid money go further? And what other stakeholders do you need in the space to also be investing in aid? Which is where impact investment is just so critical and is such an important part of that conversation. And as you noted, we do have aid programs like Investing in Women and like Pacific Rise, which have sought to promote entrepreneurship and livelihoods in the region so that over time, the need for that aid investment is diminished as um, local entrepreneurship um, increases. Um, So where do you stand on that? So... I'm not a proponent of of cutting our aid budget, and and I think that uh, that the way we approach um, aid definitely needs a rethink. And I would like to have seen that extend to the quantum of aid funding. That said, I think there's also opportunities to say what are the things that only government or in an aid context can fund, and what are the things where we can um, both be supportive of the communities developing their own resources and and capability and being able to shape the future that they want and as you said both sharing the load and encouraging others out of their out of their comfort zone so the two examples that you mentioned investing in women and pacific rise are um, terrific ways that DFAT has been doing that in the last few years to build local capacity, but also to have a real enabling effect on the on the ecosystem. And what is important about particularly investing in women is it's doing that by actually funding the things that traditionally we've never funded in age programs, you know, and it's had to come from uh, from cross subsidisation within the organisations and. Uh, I was involved in some of the early stages of of setting that up and seeing the response from the service delivery community in saying this is the things we all know are are important but never get funded was really something that was um, encouraging and unleashed a whole lot of energy um, in the communities and from the service providers, things like working with corporates to, to get greater focus on on women, having some money to incentivise investors out of their comfort zone, having some funding that can go to development of the enterprises um, that can then be invested into. So I think it would be terrific to see some more of those things. I think there's other areas that we can also um, be creative. So when we look at what are the disincentives to people investing, sometimes it's it's that we can't see in the world of today what are the things that are going to uh, to be investable and help build tomorrow. Pacific Rise has done a great job with their investment thesis in trying to paint that picture and present concrete opportunities. There's also things like political risk or lack of data and information that create um, some of the reticence for um, corporates or investors to go into uh, other country settings and that's also where I think um, our uh, aid and foreign affairs 
um, can make a, a really huge difference because in addition to money, we've got resources like data and networks on the ground. Um, and there are ways in which we can bring that together to help show people where there's that confluence of the need in a particular country uh, and opportunity, perhaps local government interest in, in building um, the the ecosystem or in, in helping people invest. That might be about food security, things as straightforward as uh, as grain infrastructure or um, helping with the uh, distribution of, of goods from, from local producers or the sustainability of local fishing um, or uh, making the most of, uh, of resources in a, in a country. Um, and there are ways in which we can be creative about facilitating that access and helping break down the barriers that come through lack of information. Yeah, and, and the sustainable development goals remain an important metric in determining that, that we've done that and that we are um, achieving um, the goals that we globally agreed on, um, on, on poverty reduction and, and other areas. And I know that the sustainable development goals are an important metric for impact investment um, as an important metric to measure the effectiveness of an investment. Um, and your colleague Sally McCutcheon um, wrote a fantastic paper on that topic, Impact Investing from Australia, Tackling the SDGs in the Asia-Pacific. So can you kind of give us a high-level summary of, of, of what that was about? Yeah, so I think the the SDGs are the most universal blueprint we've got of where progress is, where progress is needed. And um, Referring again to Richard Curtis's film, it's a it's a great motivator um, of why we need to keep going with the progress that's been made. The um, what we see sometimes from governments as well as from other actors is a tendency to to look at what we've already been doing and and how we can classify that against the um, against the sustainability so sustainable development goals and and what we need to be doing is looking more proactively at how we can invest in the infrastructure the capability the um the structures and um and models that are going to help us to actually reach the rest of the the way towards those targets by 2030. Sally in her paper focused on two particular areas, one in relation to enterprise development in the Asia-Pacific and one in relation to um, infrastructure development. And uh, I'd refer people to the, the paper we can provide a link that sets out a range of barriers and opportunities, things like skills and capability and how can we actually invest in that capacity for local entrepreneurs? How do we address the financing gaps with whether they be for social enterprises at various levels of development or in terms of local infrastructure, how can we build impact into our thinking about the breach of, uh, of infrastructure and how it might benefit the local communities uh, as well as providing immediate structural needs. Um, and her analysis of that um, was published last year but remains very, very relevant in today's considerations of the aid program. And of course, we have the Pacific Infrastructure Financing Facility, which is focused on how we finance infrastructure projects in the Pacific. Um, I'm not sure of the extent to which impact investment is is being uh, considered by the facility, but I guess on that, my, my question would be, is there a central unit within our current government that is driving 
how we can use impact investment to achieve the sustainable development goals or is that something that we're still calling upon the government to institute? So at the moment we have the Office for the Pacific which um, is headed by Ewan MacDonald uh, who has been a long-time official in uh, in DFAT as well as in other agencies in the Commonwealth Government. They are fulfilling a role uh, in um, bringing together a whole of government perspective for the Pacific. And I think that's a great place we can start in terms of ownership around the sustainable development goals, um, provided that we also look at taking it broader broader than the Pacific in our aid and foreign affairs and um, and broader still in terms of universal application, including here at, here at home, to look at how can we take a, um, a whole-of-government approach on the sustainable development goals. In terms of the infrastructure facility in particular, uh, my understanding is that it's not yet being seen through a lens of impact, but our view is it could be. In the, its mandate could be framed to be helping build the intermediaries in, um, in those countries. It could be framed to be building impact into the metrics for what's to be uh, achieved and uh, that could be done alongside the goals in terms of local infrastructure and support for governments in the region. Yeah, now before we get off the topic of um, of aid and, and financing development, the OECD did hold the Forum on Finance for the Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, that's at the end of January, right? So that's part of an ongoing conversation around how we finance the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, for listeners that aren't familiar with that forum, what's it mandated to do? So this is, the, I think, the third year that the OECD will host a forum on international development and the sustainable development goals uh, in Paris, bringing together a range of, of stakeholders. And last year they launched the report Karen Wilson led on for the impact imperative. Uh, and this year the focus will be on directing development and commercial finance towards socially and environmentally sustainable projects, as well as how we can encourage businesses to contribute to the sustainable development goals through the various levers they have from employment to supply chain um, and the way they engage with with stakeholders. That forum takes place over a couple of days at the end of January, as you you highlighted. It, It follows on from the timing of the of the World Economic Forum, and the idea is that um, leaders can bring their collective uh, insights to the table and help to shape uh, the policies that can go back out through the OECD member countries and their partners. Do you know who attends that from Australia? So uh, I don't know who's going this year. Last year uh, there were representatives from um, some of the international agencies. Um, I was there last year speaking on uh, how we can look at the practice of of impact and the related standards, um, but I couldn't tell you who's attending this year. It's really interesting and it's good to hear that the NGO community is represented and I have no doubt that you also would have done a brilliant job. Um, okay, so on a little bit more broadly now with impact investment, since we last spoke, there has been um, some significant gatherings in the impact investment world. So it would be good to understand what that means for the sector and, and how we translate that back to aid. Um, so there has been gatherings of the GIN and also the GSG. Um, so to begin with, I mean, do you want to comment on those gatherings first and then we can talk about what's happening in other regions? 
So uh, what I would say just briefly about uh, about those gatherings, of the, so the Global Impact Investment Network had its conference in, in Europe in October and um, that's gaining a lot of momentum with the investment community in, in particular, um, looking to see how they can engage for impact. And then the Global Steering Group for Impact Investment had its meeting, which was due to be held in Chile, and we had to move um, because of the difficulties in, in Chile uh, to Buenos Aires. Both of those gatherings are, have had a very clear focus on the urgency um, to pick up the pace in terms of transformation, um, which we uh, talked about at the beginning of this podcast. And I'm really heartened to see the level of engagement from actors and increasingly the the cross-pollinisation of investors coming to the table with policymakers, with uh, community sector, and particularly um, in the circumstances where the GSG had to move from uh, from Santiago to Buenos Aires, um, a very clear sense of the the real need for people to be uh, seeing the issues that are continuing to to cause harm and um, and inequality in communities addressed with a different uh, with a different approach, and out of that a galvanising effect of the people present committing to how they can continue to to drive this but really step up and engage more leaders with more urgency. So also uh, globally, um, it seems that what I've learned from our episodes is it seems that in the EU and the UK, um, there does seem to be uh, more progress around ways to institutionalise impact investment. Um, so the UK has launched the Impact Investment Institute um, with a mandate from government to take more proactive steps in driving the impact economy in the UK. So what does that step mean for them? So this is an exciting development because for the first time it, it takes the work that has been done through task forces appointed by the government in, in the UK, most recently the task force headed by Elizabeth Corley that was looking at how to create more of a culture of social impact investing in the UK and the work of the National Advisory uh, Board linked to the Global Steering Group and prior to that the G8 task force into an organisation whose job it now is to do take forward the development of the of the ecosystem um, and that's been headed by Sarah Gordon who was at the Financial Times. Um, the institute is funded by government and importantly it's funded by domestic agencies of government as well as by DFID, the International Aid Agency, so bringing together that in and from um, thinking around policy and by the corporate sector with engagement also from local government, the City of London and um, the civil society. So this is a really exciting opportunity to bring those stakeholders together and they are looking at campaigns to engage people much more broadly in discussion around investing aligned with their values, including in relation to their pension funds. They're looking to engage actively with the EU, particularly as um, the UK goes through the Brexit process and looking at how they can leverage and um, and uh, influence the EU um, regulations, including broadening some of the activities out from climate change. They're looking at 
things like fiduciary duty in order to continue to refine the, um, the predominant practice and regulation around the things that influence the way that investments are made and how we think about the stewardship of, of capital, um, including for pensions. Yeah, okay, that's really interesting. Um, the other point um, that we wanted to discuss was the World Economic Forum um, uh, meeting, which is in Davos. Um, Shia is celebrating their 50th anniversary and have released a manifesto um, calling for a better form of capitalism, which is, of course, relevant to this show um, because we do talk a lot about specifically what the role of the corporate and the private sector is in driving um, an aid agenda, but also more broadly in, in driving the shift to a more responsible uh, society and economy, etc. So, um, on that, what what is in that manifesto and what's your take on it? So the manifesto is a an updated version of a statement of, of principle and policy that has always been part of the World Economic Forum's mandate. And the Davos Manifesto 2020 looks particularly at this notion of stakeholder capitalism, um, so-called, which builds on the release from the US Business Roundtable uh, in the middle of last year, calling on corporates to look more broadly at their stakeholder base. So there's three key components to this manifesto, one of which calls on corporates to really institute this view of their of their stakeholders beyond shareholders and look at the corporation beyond being a single economic unit and that includes customers supply chains their investors um, and the communities that they serve and of course their employees as well and then also looking at how they as corporate actors can be part of a broader um, social structure and fabric, including making a contribution towards addressing social and environmental issues and challenges. Klaus Schwab, who's the founder of the World Economic Forum, has called this a, a better form of capitalism, but he's kind of pitted it against either a way of looking at the role of corporates in the private sector that focuses solely on, on shareholders or one that's more state-based, as we see in, in countries like China. Uh, I think there's an opportunity to, to look at this in a way that also um, takes the, the thinking around impact and says that our system has, uh, has predominantly had an overemphasis on the financial effects over the last you know, four or five decades, and, and now's the time to be integrating impact in the way that we think about uh, business, the role of corporates and the role of finance. Yeah. Okay. So to close then, over the next couple of months, um, there's a few things that we can all be keeping an eye out for. I know that one of them that I'm really interested in now is how impact investment is treated in the review of our aid policy um, and whether we will see any indication that impact investment will play a more significant role in how we deliver aid and specifically in the Pacific um, infrastructure facility. More broadly, globally, what kinds of things should we be watching out for? So one is definitely the development of the EU taxonomy. The uh, the form of that and substance has been agreed in 
December, just before Christmas, and now needs to go to the European Parliament and the European Council. For those not aware of this development, it is part of the European um, Sustainable Finance Package, which was part of the what was originally called the Juncker the Juncker Plan under the former leadership of the European Union and is looking at driving uh, investment activity that is promoting uh, more sustainable environmental objectives and that does no harm. This is going to have far-reaching consequences because we can expect it to influence the data and reporting um, and it will require greater disclosure from uh, from companies, and it will have implications beyond the European Union itself because it attaches to the flows of capital, and so um, it will affect those where uh, you have capital that's coming from the European Union and people doing business and corporates doing business in the European Union as well. Um, the the emphasis is predominantly on environment at the moment, but there's already discussions on how this can be broadened out to look at a broader range of, of impacts. And this is the first kind of super regulatory um, advance we've seen in, in this area that will um, that will have the, the force of the prudential uh, authorities in the EU. So it will really start to drive some significant change um, because it goes beyond uh, the some of the voluntary measures we've seen before. Uh, I think we can also expect to see the larger investment firms moving first on environment and climate but also on, on broader issues uh, um, as they uh, start to, to move forward. And I think a bellwether of that has been the two announcements that have come out of Goldman Sachs in the last couple of months, the first being a, a pledge of more than a trillion dollars towards environmental causes by 2030 and to be mobilising uh, that finance, um, it working with their, their customers and stakeholders. And then secondly, uh, to be the first uh, major global investment bank to, um, to be taking a systematic approach to divestment um, from fossil fuels. Um, that is um, something we can expect to reverberate through the financial markets and um, and may signal a, that we're at a, a tipping point. We're also seeing some um, some bright spots in terms of uh, corporates who are undertaking initiatives and, and one that um, I thought I would highlight because it's a, a, a company that has its origins uh, here in Australia, which is Lendlease, um, they have recently announced an impact investing fund focused on urban transformation and innovation um, that is coming out of their work in Italy, specifically two very big urban regeneration projects, uh, the Milan Innovation uh, District and uh, Milano uh, Santa Giulia. They've put their toe in the water with earlier projects like a hospital redevelopment in the north of Italy and uh, these projects which will come together over um, the next few years, we can expect to see bring together both um, urban and residential with uh, innovative industries and uh, and ways of bringing uh, a forward-looking approach to social and environmental sustainability. So uh, it's one to watch and hopefully we can encourage them to bring the lessons back here to Australia as well. 
Yeah, Lendlease is a really interesting company to watch. I've, I've read their Australian um, sustainability policies as well. And they're definitely, they seem to be pioneering a lot in that space. And again, I, I echo what you say. It would be great to see those learnings brought to Australia and also to see some of those learnings brought to um, more developing economies in our region as well. I think there's a lot that uh, a lot that could be achieved if we uh, can encourage some of the the lessons from the corporates and perhaps with a bit of of stimulus from things like the Pacific Infrastructure Fund to be um, helping build the infrastructure that will help drive community amenity and uh, in, you know industries of the of the future for those countries um, as well as the approach they take to to some of the uh, more classic infrastructure like roads and ports. Um, the other thing that we will see in the coming months, and I'm sure we'll talk about this again, Rachel, is that the initial signatories to the IFC, the International Financial um, uh, Corporation's Principles for Impact Investment, um, those 60 signatories uh, will start to release reports on uh, their approaches to, to impact um, in keeping with the principles requirement that they be transparent and um, and have their impact approaches verified, uh, that's due to start hitting the market between now and April and um, we'll start to provide some really interesting information. Um, it will also give us indications of, of where there may still be gaps in, in driving uh, consistency and comparability so that investors can make good decisions uh, going forward um, and it will no doubt provide some terrific cases that uh, that will, I hope, enliven people's imaginations and, and demonstrate what's already going on out there and, uh, and what's possible. Yeah, that's definitely one for us to talk about in our next episode. Um, thank you so much, Rosemary, for your time. That's it for today's episode. I hope you found it insightful. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll be sharing some more episodes from the Power Lick Lick NGO Forum from October last year. And in addition, we've got a brand new interview airing next week, which I think you'll love and lots of great interviews in the pipeline from February onwards. See you next week.